My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast. The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? Greetings, my fellow survivors, and welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? I'm your host, Cade Courtley, and if you hear my voice, then you're still alive, and it is my mission to keep it that way. Thanks for listening. Very excited today about our guest. We have Jason Hall. He's an actor, Academy Award-nominated screenwriter of American Sniper, starring Bradley Cooper and directed by the great Clint Eastwood. And also, writer and director of Thank You for Your Service, starring Miles Teller and produced by Steven Spielberg with end credits, an end credit original song by Bruce Springsteen. So this guy is rubbing elbows with the best in the business. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. So I understand you grew up in Lake Arrowhead, California, which is... uh, East, what, about 90 miles east of Los Angeles, Harry? Yeah, you can get there about an hour and 15 minutes. I imagine growing up a place like that. I grew up in Boulder, spent all my time outdoors doing yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, it's a beautiful area up there. And yeah, um, cool. yeah so you graduated from the rim of the world high school. <laughs> yeah. And I understand you were at, were you a championship wrestler in high school? Yeah, I, I won some CIFs and, and Masters and things like that. What weight class were you? Second and Masters, and I, was, uh, I went on, I wrestled a little bit at uh, Cal Poly. Really? What weight class were you generally? 189. So you were a big boy in high school. Yeah, I, I wrestled 130 as a freshman, 145, then 171 and 189. Dude, you start drinking milk before your senior year or yeah, something? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Finally got some hair in my armpits around yeah. my <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I grew up wrestling, and because I was a huge late bloomer, it yeah. was a great sport to be in because I could go right. against other super skinny late bloomer guys until – yeah. I finally started hitting my spurt in college, which is kind of random, yeah. but uh, I'm looking forward to asking you a little bit more about your skills later, but you also attended USC, University of Southern California, right? Did you go to their film I school? I did. I kind of, uh, I was there at the drama school and I uh, couldn't get into the film school, so I snuck in. <laughs> well, I, I think it served you well. It served me pretty well. I met a great teacher who was like the guy who came up with the formula for weekend box office. And uh, everyone was afraid of him, but he had a guy outside the door, and I told that guy, it was before internet, so I told him I'd turn my life over to Mecca. And it was against my re- religion to take vaccinations, and I was petitioning the Board of Health to get on the registrar, and the guy was like, I don't know, just like, give him a little, a little <laughs> bow and, and walk into class. The teacher figured it out, but I was the only one asking questions, and I was pumped to be there. So by the time he figured it out, I was his favorite student, so it worked out. So you've already had a very successful career in the entertainment business. I always love asking guys, first out, what is one of your favorite films other than one that you've been directly involved in? What is one of my favorite films? You know, Heat is one of those films where if it's on, I have to watch it or at least listen to it. Or some, if I'm at work, I'll turn off the volume and just watch. There's a couple other films like that that I absolutely, you know, I love Saving Private Ryan. The Battle of Algiers is a... Ponte Corvo directed it's like kind of a almost documentary style film. Love that movie. So uh, 
Yeah, a little bit of violence in those films. The bank scene in that movie in Heat is unbelievable. And maybe it's because they brought somebody who used to do that for a living who trained those actors. But I got to give them credit. The actors who did that, doing the mag changes, doing the shoot and move, it's one of the most realistic gunfight scenes I've ever seen in a film. It's epic. Yeah. Even the sound. I think they got the sound exactly right for every caliber of every weapon. Mm-hmm. Man, it puts a crazy amount of research into all that stuff. Yeah, Have you ever gotten a chance to work with Michael Mann? No, I met him at a dinner once and I asked him to read. I wrote a George Washington script. And so I asked him to read it for obvious reasons. And he's still uh, sitting on that. But I'm awaiting a callback for for some notes. (laughs) You know, you started off in this business acting primarily, correct? Yeah, I started off doing some acting and I was, after I got, you know, I kind of left film school. I didn't get out of film school or graduate from film school. I just sort of, that teacher finally, you know, he's, he was like, I didn't take the test because I didn't have a sticker on my thing. And he comes up, he's like, where's your fucking test? He was like a cowboy, but his jeans were worn out around his cock. I mean, he's <laughs> like super hung and you're, you're just like, what, who is this guy? But everyone in the film school was afraid of him. So he ruled the film school. And so at, once he found that out, he's like, he's like, you got brass balls. You're going to make it. Here's my number. You go to any fucking class you want. And if they give you trouble, tell them Art Murphy told them to F off. And I was like, all right. He's like, and if that's still a problem, you haven't called me. <laughs> and so I go to, I go walk into a class and I'd be like, excuse me, can we help you? And I'd be like, oh, Art Murphy. And they'd be like, oh, no problem. No problem. So you had and the, they just leave me alone. So I went to film school for free for almost a year and a half. And then I was like, all right, I, I got to move on. I felt a little bit guilty about it, but I got, I got a ton out of it. So you went to school at USC for free and didn't have to act like you were on the lacrosse team or have your yeah. parents buy a new library. Yeah. That's a yeah, pretty good bad. gig. The golden ticket at yeah. USC. Yeah. <laughs> do you bad. do you miss acting at all? I, I know you did a cameo in American Sniper. Weren't you the guy who Bradley Cooper beat the shit out of in, the, in one of the opening scenes? I was going to be a seal on, the, on one of the rooftops and I think Clint just wanted to see me get beat up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Clint, I thought I'd, I'd do one of the seals on the roof. He's like, nah, this is good for you. Yeah, <laughs> but writers get the shit beat out of them all the time in that town. You should have been good to go, right? Yeah, I was, I was, I was ready. Bradley <laughs> was eager to throw me around a little bit. <laughs> I was looking at your bio, and I saw that you actually did a part in the movie 44 Minutes. Yeah. Now, if anybody hadn't seen this movie, it's about – a basically a major shootout in North Hollywood from a bank. Basically it was a bank job that went bad and these guys were heavily armed and covered in back then, which was very sort of make it yourself Kevlar. They had it. They forgot to cover their head, but from the neck down were covered. And these guys were just walking through the cops. One of my buddies, Mark Jackson, he showed up at that. And this is before they had AR-15s and, and stuff like that in their cruisers. And they're like, we were completely, completely outgunned in that thing. That was heat. For they didn't real- have AR-15s at that time. They didn't have any automatic exactly, weapons. Exactly. This is before that. And that's the reason he told me we started carrying AR-15s, long guns, in our patrol cars. is because right. all we had were shotguns and handguns. And we were just getting destroyed by these guys wearing Kevlar walking, advancing towards him brazenly, just shooting away and not worried about getting hit because they had all this Kevlar on. Right. And they were on benzos or something. Oh, they of were course. Taking, they were taking something. They just get whacked and keep coming. 
that was a pretty fun movie, actually. It was like running into gun shops as a cop asking for weapons. And like, it was a good time. I had heard about it. And I remember when it happened. So when I, we were doing it, there was a sense of immediacy to it. I can't even remember when that was. It must have been like early nineties, somewhere in there. Yeah, like mid nineties. Yeah, yeah. The movie was mid late nineties. The bank robbery was probably uh, 94, 95, something. Mm-hmm. No, it was yeah. wild. If anybody Google this stuff and look at the live footage on YouTube, and it's insane. It really is crazy. Yeah. I think they're trying to make another movie about that. I read a script recently and I was like, no, nah, I kind of done this. <laughs> well, it leads me to another question here about have you ever been in a life threatening situation where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. Yeah. Arrowhead was a weird place to grow up because it seems super idyllic. And then you kind of go down to San Bernardino and you're like, Whoa, it's kind of sketchy down here. I don't know if you've been to San Bernardino, oh, yeah. but it's pretty much the armpit of Southern California. The, the Inland Empire is a little Inland sketch. Empire. But then everybody gets their driver's license and you're driving on these roads that are crazy and, you know, people start dying and it's a little hectic. I kissed a girl in seventh grade and 10 minutes later, she hopped into a Jeep and was dead. I think five people flew out of the Jeep, four of them died. Crazy. But I was in a fire as well up there that there was a gas fire in a two-story kind of cabin. Like we always hated it when people called our houses cabins, but this was a literal cabin, you know, closed staircase upstairs and uh, yeah the fire took off very very fast one person perished in that it was pretty hectic but it was you know it was one of those instances where you realize had you or had i hesitated in certain moments more people would have died did you get in your brain about that either that or i could have been in that jeep is that ever something that you kind of yeah yeah i mean look here's the thing about it Once, and you know this from being in combat and being around it, like there's no trials like that anymore, right? There's no graduation to manhood. There's no initiation. There's no tribal ritual. So men and women who are still seeking that, the only place they turn is the military, right? They turn to the military to find out. My dad always used to say to me, he's like, my biggest regret was not going to be a And I always thought, like, God, if people started shooting at me, I'm sure I would duck and run. You know, as a kid, I thought about that. But then to be in a situation where you get to find out, oh, am I going to duck and run or am I going to run towards the gunfire? You tell me. But I think that's why a lot of people join the military, to find and to prove something to themselves and within themselves about who they are. And um, that type of situation, I think, puts it into the questions. I kind of knew from an early age, I wanted to be in the military and I right. had a real big chip on my shoulder. Cause I was saying earlier, I was, you know, I was a late bloomer, skinny kid and felt like I had something to prove. So I was trying to find the hardest thing in the world and I found it in SEAL teams. Absolutely. Right. But the part about what you're going into it with, I graduated high school and two weeks later, three of the people I graduated with were murdered by an escaped convict. Wow. And it was so random that it, for me, that was a huge turning point in my life. I said to myself, there's just so much you can't control. What's the point of being scared? And I used that my entire time in the service. I was like, all right, well, today's the day. Now, I didn't have any kids when I was in the service, so it was a lot easier. I could be more selfish with that and just worry about my guys and doing the right job. But I I mean, it was a huge impact. And it's like, all right, well, what's the point of being scared? I make one step to the right. I hit an IED. I can't do anything about that. Right. I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting thing. What do you think about the pandemic? I mean, you're, you're out there in LA. It sounds like they're going to keep LA closed for the next decade. So <laughs> how, how are you and the family dealing with pandemic and getting through this? 
you know what? I'm a screenwriter. I'm a filmmaker, but I'm a screenwriter a lot of the time. And so I was quarantined before this. I've been quarantined at my computer for the last 10 years. I went out and directed a movie uh, two years ago. But outside of that, me and my computer have had an intimate relationship for a long time. So it's not wildly different for me. I have an office where it's just my office. And so I still go to the office. A little more sweeping and a little more dishes than normal. (laughs) But it's not wildly different. I think the part that's scary is the unemployment, the part that's really, you know, obviously getting sick is super scary. Trying to keep your kids safe against something you don't understand is like that gives you a lot of pause. We live in a city where it's that kind of unemployment is going to have an effect on everybody. Well, I tell you what, since this whole thing started with my background, everybody's like, what, what do you think about the pandemic? What makes you nervous? And I said, what makes me nervous is after the quote, dust settles. And the civil unrest that's going to happen from people yeah. being desperate, broke, unemployed, scared. That's the part where I'm right. like, that's when you need to head to the hills, have your food ready to go and stuff like that. When people are driving their trucks through a Target or busting down yeah. your back door on a regular basis. That, that's the part about this whole thing. I think hopefully it doesn't happen. I'm trying to have a little bit more faith in humanity. But yeah, I mean, just for what you were saying. You're going to have a lot of people out there that are broke and unemployed. And what are they going to do? Yeah. No, a lot of, there's a lot of desperation when you can, you sense it to your point of what you said that, you know, some things you can control and some things you can't. And it's about being calm and level-headed and prepared. What gave you the confidence for lack of a better term to move into becoming a screenwriter full-time? You know, as an actor, I was reading a bunch of scripts that were terrible that I couldn't get an audition for. Mm -hmm. So I just set out to write a terrible script. I was like, I can write a terrible script, at least one that's, you know, maybe be- a little bit better than this terrible script, and I'll own it. I was doing that, and I was like, oh, I'm going to crank this out in a couple months. You know, as an as a actor, you get to read a ton of stuff. You start to read enough scripts, start to have an idea of how they're formed and how they're shaped. I always wrote, I kind of wrote my way into prep school. I got kicked out of prep school, but I wrote my way in there kind of wrote my way into college with a crazy essay. And so I kind of, I had a knack for it, certainly. I was writing from the time I was a kid. But uh, I got that idea in my head, and then someone gave me some good advice, and they said, don't rush out and you know try and write three good scripts this year. Take the entire year and write one great script. And so I took, you know, I took my time. I took 14 months to write a script, and it was good enough to get optioned and get a deal to act in it. And like, you know, I went off and wrote another one. And I got a bunch of stories of movies that didn't happen that I was supposed to, they were supposed to be my Rocky and my Ben Affleck. But um, I think I was three in when I realized I was a far better writer than I was, was an actor. And so I kind of, my mom had given me a book called Who Moved My Cheese? And I knew exactly what the book was about. And I refused to open the book. But I finally was like, all right, Horses run in one direction. I'm in the saddle facing the other way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this thing right. First one you sold, what was it about? It was about prep school. I wrote a, like a prep school kind of psychological thriller. It was actually kind of just a way to reach out to an old girlfriend from prep school that had gotten away. She was not a girlfriend. Let me rephrase that. I was going to ask a girl to a dance. And I came home from a wrestling tournament as a freshman. and I'd won the tournament. No, no other freshman had won that tournament in, you know, the history of, like, the oldest prep school in, in New England. And I came back, and my best friend had asked her out while I was at the tournament. They went out for a couple of months, and, like, it was the girl that got away. So I put her in the script, and then 
when I was finished, I reached out to her to give her a copy. But it was about a kid who went to prep school as a concert pianist and was terrible. He was great at that, but he hated it. And he wanted to play hockey and they wouldn't let him, so he cut off one of his fingers. And they were like, we better let the kid play hockey. It's fucking crazy. And uh, it was sort of a psychological thriller that nothing was what it appeared in the end. It's called the Ice Den. What drew you to American Sniper? I, you know, I had a relationship with Chris and I put him through butts through training. Right. And, you know, just obviously terrible loss and phenomenal person. But what drew you to American Sniper? Did you have family in the military? Were you thinking about maybe being in the military at a point or? I never considered being in the military. It just, I was far too selfish. I was into my own stuff in my 20s, in my early 20s at least, and then sort of got my head right. But, you know, I got a phone call about this guy who was a Navy SEAL who did this and had the most confirmed kills and, and blah, blah, blah. And some weird thing happened in a gas station. Two guys tried to carjack him and killed them both. And like all these stories. And I was like, hey, this can't be true. And I met a guy who was like an early frogman. His code name was like Grundle. They called him Grundle. Just a beast. And uh, he had gone on to work Knox, and he was with the CIA training people down in Virginia. And I called him up, and I said, hey, this guy, and he's like, never heard of him. I was like, well, he hit a shot from this far. And he's like, no, he didn't. He's like, there are five people in the world who can hit that shot, and your guy's not one of them. He's like, all right, we'll just look him up and see. And he's like, all right, but you guys are fraud. Then he calls back two days later. He's like, so you guys one of the five. <laughs> yeah, we call that the real deal Navy SEAL because I've met yeah. thousands yeah. of thousands of phonies. Yeah. And so I ended up flying down there to meet Chris and to see what was what. There was no book at that point. There was nothing. And I think he was four months out of combat, out of the SEALs, and you could sense it on him. And it was a lot of angst and there was a lot going on there. And I kind of was thrown off by it. And they were at a ranch with 50 Texas Rangers. And they were trying to entertain them and get their business for a private security firm that Chris was going to be a part of. And it was just a shit show. I mean, it was, I walk in there, I'm wearing Converse and a hoodie. And it's like 50 Texas Rangers and a couple Navy SEALs. And they're like, who is this guy? So I walked into a real circus, you know, dressed like Dracula. And it was just, it was interesting. Well, I heard a rumor, and it might have been at that shit show, that you choked a guy out to kind of gain the respect or confidence from Chris Kyle for him to give you the thumbs up to move forward with this. Is there any truth to that? There's got to be some. I got sober when I, was, uh, when I was younger, so I don't drink anymore. So I walked into a Texas ranch house with a bunch of cops and, and ex-military, and the first thing that happened was someone offered me a beer, and I was like, I don't drink. And this guy was a, uh, he was a Dallas SWAT, and he was like, I don't know. Is this is this podcast PG PG thirteen? What are we? We can all, we can post to give it all, man. Don't hold back. Hollywood queer and, ah. and you know he was just like went on this whole like oh he doesn't drink and look he's wearing Converse and he's dressed like you know there's a comedian at the time I can't remember his name just like slinging insult after insult and I was like this fucking guy's killing me and Chris wasn't talking to me. Chris was like uh, you know. I had gotten permission through a friend of a friend to come and like, you know, there was a giant ranch house. So they put me in some bedroom somewhere, but he was like, the guy doesn't drink. I don't know who he is. I don't trust him. Nobody else knows who he is. Right. And I was just kind of sitting there 
And this SWAT guy just kept coming after me. And things turned later in the afternoon, and I was I had no in with Chris. And I just I could sense the pain in this guy. And to be brutally honest, you just felt everything that he had done, and it came off him out of his pores. And there was a bunch of Texas Rangers there who were like showing him a video of an incident that had happened a week before that was someone got sniped off their porch. And like, <laughs> it was this very intense like environment and super alpha males. And, and, you know, Chris being the alpha male of them all. And then this guy keeps coming after me. And I called my wife and I was like, you know what? I don't, this is not going to end well. I said, I don't know if there's, I don't know what's going to happen to this guy, but it's really intense. And you can just, I said, there's something, something here that's not, not right. I think you're going to come home. And she's like, well, why don't you just stay the night? You're not going to get a flight out anyway. And uh, I was like, all right, I'll stay the night. So dinner happened. And then it was, this guy kept coming at me again. And I'd heard Chris like to choke people out. Yeah. It was his party trip. So this guy called me a Hollywood faggot one more time. And I just was like, all right, that's it. And I, I put him in a front Russian headlock. And I kind of had this freestyle move where I'd spin over their back and take his neck with me. I brought him down pretty hard and left him on the floor. And then after that, Chris was like, hey, that's all right. You're all right. I'll talk to you. You know, and everyone was there. The Scottish golf commentator, Faraday, you know who I'm talking about? Huh. The guy who sits off the green, he's like, oh, it's got a little putt here. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was there. He's, you know, he loves guns and like wanted to meet Chris. And so he was there like at night with a night scope, like taking 500 yard shots off the porch. And then he's like, oh, it looks like the Hollywood writers got him down on the ground. <laughs> 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 like, this is so bananas. But in a golf voice. Oh, yes. But in a golf oh, voice. He, he, yeah, he, has, golf he has voice. just cropped his pants. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of wild. And, and Chris started talking to me after that. But the real in was the next morning, Taya and the kids arrived. And I suddenly saw this guy as a father. I saw him as a husband. I saw him as someone who'd been absent from his life and from his family for the better part of a decade. And I suddenly saw what it had cost him and, and suddenly it struck me as a movie. Well, I tell you what, I guarantee you the last place he probably wanted to be was around a bunch of drunk Rangers, you know, yeah. Texas Rangers. <laughs> so uh, you were, but you earned yourself a seat at the table, bud. Honestly. Yeah. The downfall of that was everyone wanted to wrestle me after that. Oh, so I got, there you go. So they're all lining up for a piece, huh? I got a few more. <laughs> well, tell me what it's like working with Clint Eastwood. If I could have a beer with anybody, it would be him. He's so sweet and so genuine. He's just, he's so calm. You know, I think the guy meditates 40 minutes a day. And, and if he didn't, he'd probably put a golf club through your head. But he was super, super calm and considerate and just easygoing. He makes the filmmaking process look so easy, everyone around him suddenly thinks they could go direct to film. <laughs> because they watch him do it, and it's so effortless that it seems like, oh my God, I could do this. And so he loses producers to go off direct, <laughs> try and go off and direct films because it appears to be so easy. But yeah, couldn't have had a better experience with him. We tussled a little bit over a couple things, but it was just learning to to respond to the way that he expressed his notes and his ideas and finding a way to write to the style of Clint, who, you know, is a musician and there's a musicality to what he does and a simplicity and a, and a real clarity. 
So finding a way to cut out some dialogue here and there, especially in the end, we had went back and forth on a, a 20 page sequence that became the sequence where, you know, he comes inside, he sits down and there's a pair of, he's wearing his combat boots still. And next to it, there's a pair of cowboy boots and he switches from his combat boots back to the cowboy boots. And it was, it was something that I had, I found after discarding about 10 pages of dialogue, wow. several scenes that that image said more than I was saying with my dialogue and my scenes. You know, I realized, like, I went back and I watched a couple of his movies and I was like, oh yeah, he doesn't want me to tell anybody anything. You know, he wants them to see it. He wants to use images. He wants to show it. And somehow came to that scene and delivered it to him. And he was like, oh yeah, this is it. All right, great. You know, and our, our whole, I thought I was going to get fired for a while there because it was, he wanted to cut off the whole back part of the movie. And I said, I we can't do that. we got to show this guy recovering. Because in my time, knowing Chris, I got to watch him heal. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to watch him find his way home. That was the gift of it all, was seeing this guy who I met that first time and he seemed like, you know, just had, had death and, and war just bleeding out of his pores to find a way into service and to find a way to do that at home and to be helping people and to, uh, you know, find his way back to his family. That was, that was amazing. You know, and I felt that was really an important part of the story and needed to be included. So this wasn't some dumb action movie. Well, I mean, it's cool to hear that he worked with you. I I mean, a guy that's been doing it that long in my quick tour duty as a screenwriter, I was always told once you cast a check, get the hell out of our face. We're done with you. So to keep working with him says a lot about how good you are at what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it was, I had fought for this thing. I had literally out there and found it and got Chris to trust me. And, and then, you know, as I walked out the door, he's like, Oh, write the book too. And I'm like, Oh God, now I got to get the rights to that. But <laughs> you know, really fought for this movie. And when it was not a movie and it wasn't a book and it wasn't anything. And so he trusted me He knew that I knew the story and Chris better than anyone else in the vicinity. So he was was very gracious with his time and his opinions. Well, I got to be honest with you. Anytime something like this hits the screen, I'm always a little bit cautious because I'm like, you know, it's it's a responsibility. And I think you took that responsibility on 100%, but it is. You're talking about real life stuff, death, ultimately what happened to Chris, war, and when I came out of that film, I went with, went with a bunch of veterans we saw it. And we came out and we didn't say a word until we got to the parking lot. And we're both like, oh, fuck yeah, they did it right. They did it right. So I want to thank you for that. It's an exceptional movie and an exceptional script. So thanks for doing it right for my brothers, my fellow snipers, my fellow SEALs. Well done on that. Really well done. Which thanks, moves man. me to something that made me absolutely furious regarding American Sniper. I'm sitting at home and the phone rings and it's CNN and they say, and I used to do some appearances for different survival situations in the media and they called me and they're like, Hey, did you hear about the tweet from Michael Moore? And did you hear about the tweet from Michael Moore? I'm sure you did. Sure, sure. So for anybody who didn't, because Michael Moore is completely insignificant, but he basically did a tweet following the movie coming out that said, paraphrasing snipers are cowards. And I decided I, I was done doing media stuff. And I heard that and I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I'm, I'm on. I'll head to the studio right now just to address it. And I'm kind of curious how you felt when you heard about that from that fat tub of shit. It was shocking that it happened. But 
the reality of it was that he created such a stir with that tweet that more people went and saw the movie. I think there's a, a vast majority of people were aware of the conflict without knowing what the conflict was or knowing what the big to-do was about the movie. They were aware that there was something, some controversy surrounding it, and that drove people to the movie. You know, that drove them to the theater and it, and it got them into the seats. And so thank you, Michael Moore, for your opinion that means nothing. And I guess, look, he had a family member who I think he referred to in that tweet and said his, his uncle or something like that. Right. Shot and get it, man. You know, nobody likes to be shot. Nobody likes to be shot by a sniper. And, and maybe you knew the guy, maybe you didn't. I don't know. But there was a tremendous amount of like, oh, is this going to be a thing? And look, you knew Chris. Chris, if he had been around, that would have gotten really crazy. And I'm sure Chris would have said some crazy stuff and like it would have escalated. The whole process of making that movie was changed when I, I finished a draft and I literally sent it to Chris and I said, hey, man, I got a draft. I want you to read it. He's like, all right, I'll give it a, I'll give it a look. Hope they like it. I hope you work again. He's giving me shit. That was a Thursday and he was murdered, I believe, that Sunday. Did he get a chance to finish it, you think? I don't think he read it. Well, he, he would have been proud. Yeah, he, I, I think he would have. And I think, you know, certainly the script changed after that. There was an entire ending that needed to be reworked. And I think that without that opportunity, Taya gave me a, an opening after that to talk to her. And, and we spent quite a bit of time on the phone. And, you know, I got to learn insight into this guy that nobody but a wife could have shared. I had talked to her before and, and met her. But it wasn't under these circumstances where it was suddenly desperate and of such great magnitude that she shared these things about her husband and, and get this movie right because she was she was clearly aware that this movie was going to be how her kids remember their dad to some degree, you know. And hopefully it's not just that movie. Hopefully there's a lot more. But that's the legacy of their father. And it was also a way for her to process her grief, I think, and have a creative outlet for that. Well, it just really says everything about how much they had built up a trust with you, especially having to deal with what happened in that situation. And uh, it's commendable. It really is. So you, you entered your directorial debut in the movie, Thank You for Your Service, which is about Iraq veterans coming back home to Kansas. Yeah. How did you like directing? I mean, that had, uh, that was probably something you've been dying to get into. And here you are, you're the man in the chair. Yeah. It was an interesting way in, in which I got into it because I was working on American Sniper with Spielberg. Right. Spielberg had attached himself to Sniper. And so we were sitting in a room over the course of three months working on this script and going back and forth. And in one of those meetings, he handed me the book, Thank You for Your Service, in which David Finkel had followed these soldiers around, followed them to Iraq, followed them home, lived in their houses, lived in their homes, you know, obviously deployed with them but came home with them and followed them into the after war. And he wanted to direct that. He said, oh, I'm going to direct this one too. I was like, directing two war picks, Iraq, Afghanistan. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. But uh, it ended up he didn't direct either. When he turned that script in, I think he let someone at CAA read it. They said it was you know, the best script they'd read in the last two years. And he greenlit the movie on the phone. And then they started pitching him directors. I don't think I was on their list. 
of directors that they were pitching, but I had informed my agents. I said, hey, if he doesn't do this, and I don't think he's going to, I really want to direct this movie. I feel it, I know it, and I had spent quite a bit of time with the, the boys, talking to the boys through the movie documents. So yeah, it was a tremendous opportunity for me, and I, I sold myself to him, and I went in, and he gave me a couple of weeks to put together a presentation, and then you're shown pictures to the guy who's seen the best pictures in the world, and and finding a way to express my ideas and what I saw to him and allowing him to mentor me through this process, which was amazing. Have you ever been over to Iraq? Because you nail it. No, I had not been to Iraq, but I commend all of these journalists, these photojournalists, these guys, especially these Magnum guys. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but Magnum's the agency that represents a lot of these uh, war journalists and photojournalists that document this stuff. And, uh, those guys are in so deep that they're right there. They don't have a gun. They have a camera. The work that some of them have done, Moises Simon, Peter Van Ackmel, these guys are just right in the middle of it. And I poured over their work. I just immersed myself in it. I had rooms full of pictures. Every scene had like its own wall. So I had gone through, I don't know how many pictures, but yeah. quite a few and, and really just, really just uh, dug in as much as I could to the imagery of that incident. Well, I can tell you it's a total shithole. So you didn't miss a whole hell of a lot, but you definitely <laughs> captured it. So good on you for that. No, it's uh, it's tough. You know, I forced them to take uh, several thousands of pounds of trash over to Morocco because I wanted to get the right kind of trash. I was aware that Morocco would have different looking trash than Iraq had. And uh, some of those little blue bags mm-hmm. and some of the things that I knew that from the photography that I knew that we would need. So we ended up importing a ton of trash over there, maybe two tons, and really just tried to get it right. But it's tough. You know, it's tough. The dirt's a different color. The buildings have a different architecture, some of them. Even after you shoot it, you're going in to paint out certain wires that you know weren't there, certain satellite dishes and certain reds that are different than, you know, in Morocco than they are in Fallujah and, and Iraq. And it's a tough challenge if you, if you put yourself to the task. Well, you should have taken over a couple of tons of human feces and burned it so you can get the full effect of what it really smells like there, too. The full immersion. Yeah, full yeah. immersion. Yeah, I heard it's a very pleasant aroma over there. Oh, it's nothing that smells like it and nothing that smells worse except maybe a burning body. But uh, So yeah. you've gotten the chance to work with Steven Spielberg. I heard a funny story about you dating Steven Spielberg's daughter back in the day and wow. you bumped into him and tom hanks at a concert you want i'll let you finish it it has <laughs> something to do with where, you, is, where did you hear that story oh uh, we all have our sources right but it had something to do with you were going to a concert with spielberg's daughter you bumped into i had no my sister went to brown she knew tangentially knew jessica capshaw and set us up on a on a blind date. We went and got a coffee. And I was still, I was an actor. I was, maybe I was writing at this point. I was totally penniless, like beyond. And, and this is, some of your older audience members will remember when you could take your ATM and you would extract cash. And sometimes you'd extract more cash than you actually had. <laughs> and so your bank account would go into the negative. Right. Well, I was deep into my negative. What did I have? I had... I believe I had $12, I had $12 to my name. Like that was it. I didn't know where I was getting the rest. I had some gas and 
she called me up. She said, hey, you want to go to this concert? And I was like, uh, she's like, I got tickets. I was like, oh, okay, maybe. Yeah. She's like, it'll be fun. Come on, let's go. Let's go. I was like, all right. So we pull up to Santa Monica Civic and parking is six bucks. And I'm like, you know. So there's half your life savings. I'm not going to ask to go have you know. And so I paid six bucks. And so now I'm down to six bucks. And as we're walking inside, she goes, oh, by the way, my parents are going to be here. I was like, parents. And uh, and so we get inside and it's Stephen and Kate and Tom and Rita are with them. And uh, I'm just like, you know, I've been to coffee with her once. She's total sweetheart, super smart, very talented girl. But I'm just in over my head. And I'm an actor and I'm like, well, I was Steven Spielberg and it's Tom Hanks. And it's and so uh, not too long. It was a Melissa Etheridge concert. So the whole thing was spinning me around. And I was like, I got to go get something to drink. I need to splash some water on my face. Like, I don't know what's going on here. And so I get up and I'm going to excuse myself to go get something to drink. And I said, I'm going to go get something to drink. And at the last moment, I think, oh, like, mind your manners. Ask them if they want something. Of course, they're not going to want something. What do they want from me? I'm like a penniless, out of work, unemployable, unemployed actor who's got $6 to his name. And I'm like, you guys don't want anything, do you? And I'm literally like, of course they don't want anything from me. And I'm turning around and Stephen goes, oh, I'd love a hot dog. And he goes, hey, Tom, do you want a hot dog? Tom's like, I'd love a hot dog. Ketchup, please. (laughs) And I get out there and the hot dogs are $3 each. And so I bought those two guys hot dogs with my last six bucks. And they enjoyed their hot dogs. They had no idea. But the first time I went in to meet Stephen on Sniper, he recognized me. And he's like, I know you. Where do I know you from? And I was like, well, you're not going to believe this. I said, I bought you a hot dog with my last $6. (laughs) He was like, what? And I told him this story. And he called Jessica in that moment. And he was like, Jessica, you're not going to believe this. Have you heard this story? And she's like, why didn't you tell me that story? I was like, because it's not a good story until (laughs) right now. Until right this moment. I mean, now it's great. It was just a sad story about a guy buying the two richest men he did, most talented men he'd ever buy, hot dogs. And now it's a story about me actually getting to work with them. And she's like, all right, I get it. So yeah, that was my intro. So I had a, I had a good, we got off on the right foot. For anybody out there who's trying to be successful in the business, just buy Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg a hot dog and wait 10, 15 years. Yeah. Catch up, <laughs> no onions. Recipe for success. All right, we do a little something on this show that we call Hypothetical Survival World. Do you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Where if you you want to go into the cave, you turn to page 28. Want to hop in the river, turn to page 22. Well, that's kind of how this works. Basically, what I do is I'm going to put you in a hypothetical survival situation. And I'm going to give you a series of options. And if you choose the right option, you get 10 points. And if you choose the wrong option, that's a minus 10 points. And a perfect score is 100 points. So here's the situation. Are you ready to play? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How many people have gotten perfect scores? One. 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 And it was very surprising who it was. I'll tell you after this. All right. All right. So here we go. The quarantine. This isn't a perfect world, obviously hypothetical. But the quarantine has just come to an end. Human beings are excited to get back into the real world. Jason, you decide to head to the mall, stretch your legs. It's about I don't know, 11 a.m. when you arrive, and it seems like other people 
have had the same idea. So you head to the food court, it's relatively crowded. As you pass through the busy food court, you hear bang, bang, bang. All right, people start scattering, chaos ensues. What's going on? You are neck deep in an active shooter situation. What do you do? So here's your first choice. You're in the food court, you hear the explosions, you hear the gunfire. Do you look around to try and identify the source of the gunfire or do you hit the deck? I mean, I know what the right answer is, but I don't, here's my problem. I don't think I would do the right thing in a situation like this ever. Well, this is a hypothetical situation. So hypothetically, you can look at- Wait, let me ask for some context. Sure. Do I have my kids with me? Do I have kids? Am I married? Am I living the same life I'm living right now? Yes, but you are alone in the food court at the local shopping mall. Alone in the food court. And you can look around to try and identify where the shooters are, or you can hit the deck. Well, I'm going to identify where the shooters are. Well- I'm sorry, but that's not the correct answer Answer given this situation. Reason being is you will buy yourself time maybe later to try and identify, but the very first thing I always tell people, you hear gunshots, get down and move. That's all you need to think about. Get down and move. Don't be the deer in the headlights. Don't freeze. Get down, create a smaller target, and move. So hit the deck. Minus, a minus 10 points. That's okay. But do I get to see where they are? We're going to get there. So here we go. Let's just say you hit the deck. All right. Smaller target. So you look and you see the exit, which is about 100 feet away. All right. And what do you do? Do you head for the exit or do you start crawling since you're already on the deck somewhere else? Do you just bump up, run for the exit, or just stay low, keep crawling? See, this is what I mean. My inclination would not be to leave. The smart thing is to probably go for the exit. But I have that thing where every time I go into a bank, I imagine that the bank's about to be robbed. That's and good. Like, That's situational awareness. You need to spread the word on that. What am I going <laughs> to do? And it's, this is probably slowing down your game, but I'm a good dad right now. I haven't made any huge mistakes. I haven't gotten any divorces. I haven't done anything stupid. And my thing is like, man, if I could take out a bank robber and go down while I'm still in good graces with everybody in my life, here we go. All right. Well, I, 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 I run, I'm probably going to run the wrong way, but we're trying to win a game right now. So what's the first choice again? So again, you can jump up and just start running for that exit, which is 100 feet away, or you can stay low and crawl. Yeah, you're supposed to stay low. Is that your answer? Yeah. Congratulations, you're back at zero. (laughs) (laughs) Which is better than negative 20, right? No, that's it. Absolutely. Get down and crawl, okay? Just start moving. The people who die, they huddle up, they freeze, they're standing. And I got news for you. You don't know anything about how many shooters there are, any of that stuff. And so to make a mad dash over 100 feet, that's just saying, hey, take me out right now. Yeah. So... You are down and you need to get off the X. The X is the kill zone. And you're right in the middle of the kill zone. You have two choices. There is a table that's about 10 feet to the right. And there's a concrete bench that's about 20 feet to the left. You can head toward crawl towards that table 10 feet away or crawl towards that concrete bench that's about 20 feet away. I mean, look, it's concrete. I think it's worth the extra 10 feet. Nailed it. So that that puts you back in the plus column again. And the reason being, there's cover and there's concealment. Cover, that stops bullets. 
like concrete does. That's a good place to be. Concealment, like a table, that doesn't stop bullets. And when you're still on the kill zone, that's not a good place to be. So congratulations, you're at plus 10. All right, you've made it to the concrete bench. Do you stay put or do you take a peek and start looking around to figure out where is the source of this gunfire? Can I hear how many guns the, the rounds are coming from? Not inside because of what happens with reverberation and echo and everything. One gun could sound like 10, 10 could sound like two, and trying to figure out where it is by staying huddled under is going to be extremely difficult. Right. And how many rounds does he fire? He's probably on his is second like, match. Going through the mags, he's like, well, or is this, is, this is all part of the decision you need to make here. You don't know if there's 10 shooters, if there's one shooter. You don't know right. if he only had one mag. You don't know if he's got 20 on his chest. Right. So you can stay down behind this concrete, or you can try and take a peek to try and identify what is happening in your current situation. I mean, look, it may be the wrong answer, but I would try and look and see what's happening. Absolutely. And reason being is, okay, you have cover for now, but that's not going to last very long. You're going to have to make a decision after this. And that decision you're going to make is going to be a lot better knowing where it's coming from and maybe how many of them there are. So to try and take a peek around and find the source, that's excellent. Plus 20 points. All right, Jason, you took a look around. You found out, okay, I see it's over there. So you have a couple of options here. There is a shop that is about 20 feet away from you to the right in the opposite direction of the gunfire. And then there's also another one of these concrete benches just to the left, also away from the gunfire. That's the, about the same distance. So there's a store that you can run into, or there is another concrete bench, both about the same distance. Is one of them away from sort of the store? Is it glass? It's made out of glass? Uh, yeah, it's it's what you it's what you would see in a standard shopping mall. Big glass windows. You know, it's got right. the big roll up door. And so they're both the same distance apart and they're both away from the source that you just identified, concrete bench or a open store. Sorry for all the questions. No problem. It's hypothetical, man. Hypothetically, am I trying to keep from being killed or am I trying to stop the shooter? Well, given the fact that you're unarmed in a public space and you don't know how many of these guys there are and how much ammo they got, I would say that you're trying to get out alive so you can get home to your family. I don't know if I can live with that. <laughs> honestly, honestly don't know if I can live with just like getting away. I don't think I would be happy after I did that. Well, you're not away yet. Right, I'm not away. All right. So maybe I can come back in later. I can come back in around the other side. Hypothetically, you could get out to that gun store and come back in to take care of business. But right Right. now, the decision you need to make is concrete bench 20 feet away or open shop 20 feet away. away In the opposite direction? Yeah. 20 feet away. No, both of these are heading away. It's just you've got a shop. I I would guess that the store has an exit out of the back of the store. That No store has one entrance and exit. So they have to have something that goes out the back of the store. So go to the store. Okay, and fortunately, I would not recommend that. And reason being is you were still only 20 feet away from the kill zone when you got to that concrete bench. Right. So you're still in the kill zone, technically speaking. So, okay, so you're, that's outside. So you're getting further and further away. You're yeah. So 
what we try and teach people is when you're on the X and you're trying to yeah. get off, you do little bounce from cover to cover to cover. All right. And so okay. your best bet is extend that range from that kill zone by going to that next concrete bench, which supplies cover. It'll right. keep you from getting nicked. Instead, right. if you just went for, okay, I'm still close to the kill zone, but I'm going for that. It's just not a good move. You're going to have to be kind of patient with this and slowly build up that distance from the X. So in this right. particular situation, it would be recommended bound to that next piece of cover, that concrete bench, but you're still in the plus column, plus 10. Right. All right. So you did that small bound. You were at that next concrete bench. And what you see is now you have an opportunity to go into a shop. All right. You've gotten far enough off the X. Boom. You're in, you're in a shop. Now, do you hide in that shop or do you head for, as you spoke of earlier and very smart, every mall, they've got fire exits or a fire hallway in the right. rear of each one of those shops. Now, this isn't an exit outside, but it's an exit in the rear of each one of these stores. Right. Do you head for that fire exit in the rear of the store or do you hide in the shop not knowing what might be in that fire hallway? Maybe there's a shooter in that, maybe not, or you can hide in the store. I mean, I would go for the, I would go for the fire hallway. Nailed it. Absolutely. In a situation like this, move, move, move. Because I got news for you. If I'm involved in one of these situations again, I'll sure as hell not going to wait around to get shot at, get killed by hiding somewhere. I'm going to fight on my feet. And I think right. you would too. So you're heading out into that fire tunnel or the fire hallway in the rear of each one of these stores. Excellent work. Plus 20. All right. So right. again, it's keeping that distance. Here's the problem. You go from that fire hallway and you try and go to an external exit. It's been chained up. So these guys aren't as stupid as they sound. So you can't get from that fire hallway outside and you think you hear somebody down the hallway coming toward you. Do you head back into that same store or do you head to a different store? A little vague, but... That's a tough one because if you head to a different store, that door might be locked. And if you go back to the same store, you're backtracking. And if someone followed you... Go with your instincts. Yeah. Go with your instincts. I'll go to the new store. Excellent. And you already explained why. Somebody might have spotted you head out the back and they're going to come after you. So right. we say something in the seals, easy in, easy out, but no, not necessarily. Okay. You go in one way, you come out a totally different way. So you're going into a different store that puts you at plus 30. All right. We're winding this thing down real quick here. All right. So you're into a new shop and here's the situation. You hear somebody coming down that hallway that you were just in but you look out the front of the store back into the main section of the mall and you still see gunmen sort of walking back and forth. They're shooting people to make sure they're dead. So you've got gunmen in the main section out the front of that store you're in that are moving around, but you know somebody's coming up right behind you. Are you going to head out to the main section of that mall and just try and bust out of there? Or are you going to try and set up an ambush to take out this person that you think is coming in behind you into the store that you're currently in. So you're going to head out the front of that new store you're in, or you're going to try and set up an ambush and try and take out one of these guys who might be coming through that door you just came in. So now we know that there are multiple shooters out there. Yes. You just, you just discovered that. Okay. There are multiple shooters out there. And this sounds like this is just one person behind us. So I would do the ambush. Outstanding. 
plus 40. Now, neither one is awesome, but neither is being in an active shooter situation. And right. so if you have the ability, I had a friend that had to deal with this. He grabbed a big old coat rack, set up shop and pummeled this guy. And right. you have a little bit of the elements of surprise because he's not quite sure where you went. He thinks he saw you slip in there. You set up a hasty ambush. Take this yeah. guy out. Congratulations. Now you have his gun. Right. All right. So you've taken this guy out. You are armed. What are you going to do? Are you going to head out the front of that store and engage some of the other shooters that you were seeing passing by? Or are you going to head for the exit, which you can see? I see the exit. It's right there. But I see these guys. They're over there. They're shooting. What am I going to do? Engage the what shooters. Kind of, what kind of, I took a gun off this guy. What kind of gun is it? Uh, let's give you an AR-15. All right. So it's a. I'd be walking out the exit with an AR-15. Keep that in mind for the last question. Yeah. <laughs> if I had an AR-15 and it was and I checked and it had a full mag, I would I would engage the shooters. Okay. All right. I would too. But you need yes. to get moving out of there because maybe you don't have a full magazine. A smart right. guy would check that out. A smart guy would be ripping stuff off the guy you just dropped. Right, right. And so I should add to the fact that you've only got four rounds in that mag. So given what yeah. you said, I'm not going to deduct anything or add anything to you. We'll call that an even Steven. So right. there you have it. You've engaged other shooters, but you're dry. There's nothing left. Final question. Do you run out that exit, haul an ass, or do you drop <laughs> that rifle and head out that exit with your hands up? I think the latter. Absolutely. And why is that the case? You run out with a gun, they're going to shoot you in the shooter. Yeah. And this is a huge point here. For anybody that has to deal with law enforcement, the sooner you put them at ease, the better you're going to be. These guys yeah. don't have any idea what's happening inside that mall. They see you run out. They're going to assume you're one of the guys. Congratulations. You made it out of an active shooter scenario and you got capped by the cops crappy ending <laughs> that's awesome all right you ended up with 50 points which is by far better than the majority of our guests so be proud of uh, that wow. i would not be excited that you got beat by steve-o steve-o <laughs> steve-o steve knows what he's doing he man. does though he smoked it he does he's a smart dude and he's lived around the world he's got a good education he's also got street smarts no he is and he put a lot of thought into it he really did and just went dink dink down it so Thank you for playing in hypothetical survival land. I do appreciate it. What did you learn from this? We call it an after action port in the military. It's basically lessons learned. What was what was a takeaway for you? I think that the the incremental thinking and this staying calm and staying down is what you learn. My instincts are like a little bit off in that if I felt like I could take one of the guys out, even if I lost my life doing it, I would probably do that. If I did this again, I might have you're with your kid because that would change the entire that equation. Really change everything. everything changes. I'm there with my kid. No, no instinct to be a hero. It's about then it's suddenly about that person. Absolutely. And I'll apply you that know? to the next victim. But And if you're single, if you're single, then it's it's totally different. Right. You know? my, my wife's never gonna listen to this podcast. I'm not even gonna tell her I did it because she's gonna be mad. he's going to hear that I've I've made some bad decisions and I have some heroic impulse that's going to get me killed. And she's going to be upset because I'm her primary dishwasher right now. (laughs) Well, you know what? There's nothing wrong with the hard day's work, right? That's right. Hey, Jason, thank you again for your time. I can't thank you enough. Really appreciate you playing along in survival land and amazing. Got to, I'll thank you once again for 
what you've done in your profession and how you've kept it real and honest and, and been responsible with it. Really appreciate it. I know all, all the boys do as well. And what do you got coming up? What's next on the list? Like I said, I'm I'm working on a uh, a movie about young George Washington mm-hmm. when he was fighting the French Indian War, and he was he was desperate to be a uh, a British officer. And I think that uh, it's a story about how he came to be a leader. It's gritty and it's a it's a war pick, and that they kept sending him out there trying to give him these hurdles to like oh deliver this letter you'll be a British officer after that, and they kept moving the cheese on him and. And they created a very, very angry individual who became the beating heart of uh, the revolution. So that's the plan. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. Really do. Hey, folks, the best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered, just leave it in the comments. So you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Jason Hall, you were a survivor. Congratulations, my friend. And thank you very much. Thanks, man. This is Kate out. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti.